Hello everyone, and welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I wish I could think of a clever, witty way to bring in my co-host today, but I've been doing a heck of a lot of overtime at work, so my brain is taxed. So let's just say, hi Chad, how's it going? You could have called me the Mohawk Maniac. Okay, Mr. Mohawk Maniac, how's it going? <laughs> it's going good, man. How are you? Uh, well, let's see. Other than overtime, and before we were recording, Chad and I have uh, had a conversation about how we're both kind of falling apart, where I'm having some knee issues, and Chad, you were almost eaten by bugs this uh, week last weekend. Yeah, I I was feasted upon by gnats, and then I got stung by a yellow jacket. Yay! you nature in the words of pro <laughs> okay that's from uh that's from um one of my favorite youtubers uh pro jared he does a lot of video game episodes and he's he's talked about dungeons and dragons a few times too but he was talking about um the hydlide series and he was uh it, there in some of the games you can be killed by trees and it's like he's playing uh the game and it's like he gets killed by a tree, and he's like, "Fuck you, nature." <laughs> so, you know, though, I I was saying I got bit by a, a yellow jacket. I can't complain though. I'm 42 years old. The last time I got bit by any sort of a bee, I was 10. But I did sit on a, on a hornet's nest, and I got stung 56 times, including in places you don't want to talk about because I sat on the underground bees nest <laughs> okay was this uh, on a was this on a dare or were you just being a a, a stupid no, kid no it was there we were we were we were at a family picnic with another oh, okay. family and stuff and didn't know it was there and i sat down and i had my you know paper plate in my lap you know sitting cross-legged and all of a sudden i it's like i was getting poked in the legs you know so i pick up my thing to look to see what's in there and it's just this bees just all over me and my mother of course you know she takes me to the hospital because she wants to find out if i'm allergic to bees or you know afraid i might be allergic to bees because my grandmother was allergic you know where it was really bad and of course the, the, the drive to the hospital takes like 15 minutes from where we were and the doctor she's like is he allergic to bees is he gonna be okay and the doctor goes if he was allergic to the bees with this many stings You'd have been dead already. <laughs> you know, that almost sounds like uh, something of biblical proportions. You know, it kind of does. I didn't even think about that when I told that story, but it works so well, doesn't it? Yes, it flows rather nicely into today's topic. So we're going to talk, uh, do a historical gaming episode. And was there a plague of bees? No, there was a plague of locusts oh. and gnats and yeah. frogs. But no bees. Yeah, and actually, uh, there was this one series, I forgot what it was called, but uh, they were suggesting possible scientific explanations for some of the things in the Bible. And they had like specific, uh, or they had a theory as to how there could be scientific reasons for the 10 plagues of Egypt. And they were talking about like, okay, about the, the Nile turning into blood, that that could have been as a result of like a seasonal, like I think it was like algae bloom. And because yeah, of that, yeah. that would kill the fish and the kill the frogs. And with fewer fish and frogs around, well, actually, I think first, like, the frogs would have started to come in, you know, try to move away from the river. But since there were going to be less of those animals that would prey on insects, they would start to become more common. And, you know, of course, you get bit up and stung by insects, that's going to cause the boils. And they were also mentioning that, like, at this time, because of some of the conditions, that a lot of the grain in this in storage could have started to rot and developed a specific mold. And since uh -huh. the firstborn child was like, you know, the parents, their immune systems had developed enough where they could probably fight it off. But the children, it was a different story. Now the firstborn child was more likely to eat more than the younger kids. So they probably would have ingested more of this mold and uh, that could have been one of the reasons for the death of the firstborn and, you know, it's it's uh, it's an interesting theory. But, yeah, we're going to be talking about historical gaming and specifically using the Old Testament as a backdrop or inspiration, which I know it's a, it's a historical period that usually isn't touched very much in gaming. 
I don't know about you, but I've only seen one supplement from a major publisher that actually talked about it uh, several years ago back during the the heyday of the D20. I'm sorry. Yeah, the D20 open license and third edition. uh, Green Ronin did make a book called Testament. And it was it focused on the Old Testament, so okay. I didn't. I I just saw it. I didn't. I don't really. I don't think I paged through it, or maybe I did, but so I don't really remember much of what was in there. But other than that, like I said, the there's not really too much out there for you know Old Testament and how to use that particular time and and, and place in gaming, which we could probably debate as to reasons why, but. I figure it might be an interesting topic to cover. So now I can add one to that as well. I played a, a system um, a couple of years ago, I would say, called Hillfolk. Now, Hillfolk is set up in such a way, it's kind of almost like a GURPS, except it's a storytelling game. So any like combat is done through storytelling. And then there is a bit of chance. There is some dice rolling, but not a ton of it. And... Uh, We played a game actually set in the time of the pharaohs. So during the Bible, because um, you hear that, you hear that phrase quite a bit in the Old Testament, the time of the pharaohs. And uh, especially before uh, Moses and the, the chosen wander, the wander through the uh, desert for 40 years. And um, I actually played a character that was an escaped slave from Egypt. Now, the actual game took place in Israel, but it was based around the idea of the the um, different groups in Israel at the time. You know, the more the the moving. What's the word? So the, mi- the migration period. Right during the migration period, so it was a really interesting game, but it was all story based. But Hillfolk, they have they have setups for you know that period. They have it for. Uh, you know, the Victorian time, during the Renaissance, uh, they touch on even like the 1920 gangsters. So you can play it pretty much in any location you want. But we actually picked and decided to do this Time of the Pharaohs. And it was it was kind of interesting. So when you brought this idea to me, I'm like, well, at least I can talk about that. Because okay. I didn't have a I didn't have a whole lot of time to like bone up on my uh, on my Bible and and gaming. I mean. I'm always boned up on gaming, I guess. Bone up on the Bible? Yeah, bone up on the Bible. I didn't I'm... say put my bone on the Bible. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. But anyways. <laughs> have you ever heard that phrase about boning up on something? No, I have not. Usually when I hear about people talking about boning something, a different meaning comes to mind. Well, maybe, and it, and maybe it usually I'm not like... Maybe I'm not like the rest of your friends. Maybe I've got a little bit of a moral compass. <laughs> okay, I, I, Chad, that little yeah. halo above your your uh, your head there. The just one resting on the horns. <laughs> yes, exactly. I said your little halo kind of broke that. Just kidding. So, but so we're gonna it's talk. A, it's a little tarnished, but hey, it's still there. It's still there. Yeah. So we're going to begin our discussion right after this quick announcement. Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting... Some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, horror, or just horrifically bad puns, we've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. And we're back. So before we begin, let's just talk a little bit about... Um, our background in religious studies. And now why don't you go first? Cause I've talked about my religious studies degrees several times during the course of the uh, 200 some episodes that we've got. 
All right. So let's see. I was born and raised Roman Catholic. Um, and then when I had daughters and we started putting them through religious education um, in the Catholic Church as well, I uh, started teaching um, because it was one of those things where we had the parents meeting one year and it said, and, you know, they're looking for teachers. They're always looking for teachers for these these programs, you know. And I was sitting in the church and I said a little prayer and I said, you know, God, if if you want me to do this, don't let anybody else volunteer. <laughs> no one else so volunteered. I, so no one else volunteered. So I spent the next six or seven years teaching religious education. Um, and then once both of my daughters were uh, through confirmation, I do other things. So I kind of took my Wednesday nights back and I stopped teaching. Okay. So. Yeah, and, and as I mentioned, I have a degree in religious studies that I earned while attending class at UW Oshkosh, and I actually took, well, technically four classes on the Old Testament, but there was one that I, I count, even though it wasn't technically an Old Testament class. Uh, the, all these classes were taken with a professor named uh, Dr. William Erbrock. He was one of my favorite professors and very influential on me. Uh, first one I, class I took with him, and this is the one that I count, even though it's technically not an Old Testament class, it was called Ancient Near East Religion. And it talked about the religion and mythology of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Sumerians, and the Canaanites, which is very relevant because, you know, all of those cultures did interact with the Hebrews at one time or another. And then I took my core class, the Old Testament, which was just your basic overview uh, after that, I took Old Testament poetry and wisdom. I also took one called The Prophets. And then I also took another one that was specifically about the book of Job. Oh, that's such a happy book, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is. It's it's actually, it's one of the happiest books in the Bible. It's it's either Job or Ruth. The One of those two have to be the the best books, the best, happiest books in the yeah. Bible. <laughs> but and, and but, that, that class on Job, it, we didn't just focus entirely on the book of Job, though. There were a couple of other mo like modern works that the professor included because they dealt with the theme of suffering, which is something that we see quite a bit in, in the book of Job. And, you know, one of the, it actually inspired me to do an independent study project with uh, Dr. Erbrock called The Character and Development of Satan where I talked about the development of Satan from the Old Testament to the New Testament, which is interesting because, you know, the word Satan, pop quiz for you, Chad, do you know what the name Satan means? I don't. I do know what the name Lucifer means, but not Satan. Okay. Satan means adversary or accuser. And okay. now in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes the there's different ways that they refer to Satan's in there. And sometimes it's uh, Hasatan, other times it's Hasatan, which they sound very similar. And I don't speak Hebrew, so also I should probably give the mispronunciation disclaimer here. Uh, if I mispronounce these any of the Hebrew in here, it's because, well, I'm trying to remember how my professor pronounced it. Also, some of my Old Testament is a bit rusty, so we might not be entirely 100% accurate, but that's what I always strive for, though, when I do research my uh, historical gaming topics. But And the difference between the Hasatan and Hasatan, it, one of them refers to a, pr a proper noun, and the other is a title. Now, we talked about the book of Job. The particular Satan that appeared in that book, it was the one where it referred to a title. So it wasn't, you know, a specific you know, angel named Satan or an accuser, it was a title. And the uh, what some scholars have suggested is that they interpret that to mean that uh, they would be like a roving intelligence agent where they would go and they'd look for people who were, you know, doing bad things and needed to be tested and reported that back to God. And in the case of the book of, book of Job, it's not that, you know, Job was doing anything bad. It's just the Satan was like, well, this accuser was like, well, um, I think the exact words was like, God is like, have you considered my servant Job, who's all righteous? And Satan is like, yes, but if you took away all his prosperity, would he curse you or would he continue to bless you? 
the theme of that class about the book of Job was a lot focused on the whole when bad things happen to good people mentality. But so, okay, I, I get that. But now with the two, the two um, terms for Satan, mm-hmm. so one being a title, one being the actual demon Lucifer, does that mean there's more than one Satan? Yes. Uh, again, when we go by the term the Satan, um, the and again, I apologize. It's been I haven't read that report I wrote. I still have it saved on a on my computer somewhere. So I apologize. On a three and a half inch floppy drive. That's where it was originally, but I did actually transfer it to my computer. Um, so I okay. I don't remember exactly where um, the like in the the tale of Balaam's ass. That one I think it was referring to a specific person. Whereas I know in the book of Job, that's where it was the title. So we'll, maybe we'll go into the book of Job later. But one of the things about the Old Testament is we're talking about, and this is where it's challenging, I think, trying to decide where to do a historical campaign, is because when we talk about the books of the Old Testament, we're talking about, uh, well, the books from Genesis to the end of Second Chronicles. Now, depending on the religion, and we were talking a little bit about this before the show, Different denominations of Judaism and different denominations of Christianity recognize different books of the Bible as part of, you know, that of canon, where some denomination, well, because we've got the Old Testament period, uh, then there's a period called the intertestamental period, and that's where we find a lot of the apocryphal works uh, like Maccabees, Bell and the Dragon, uh, letter of Jeremiah, and you know, just to name a few here. And then from there, it goes into the New Testament. Now, if we're focusing on the Old Testament, most denominations do go from at least Genesis to Second Chronicles, which uh, covers a period from mm-hmm. about 240 BC to fi- uh, 540 BC. And if you want to get technical, the Old Testament to the Jews is known as the Tanakh. And sometimes we call it the Hebrew scriptures or the Hebrew Bible. It's made up of three different sections. First, there's Torah, which means teachings. This is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The second part, Nevi'im, is prophets. So this is where you find a lot of the books named after someone like the book of Ezekiel, uh, the book of Jeremiah, book of Isaiah. And then finally, there is the Ketuvim, and this translates to writings. So this includes poetic works like Psalms, Proverbs, and the Song of Solomon. With Catholicism, did which one of the, how much of the Old Testament and the, the books in there did they accept as divinely inspired? I couldn't tell you an exact number. I don't remember, but I do know that the Old Testament does run through Chronicles. That's a hell of a story. The Old Testament in and of itself. You know, if you're if you're reading for pure enjoyment as a as a reader of uh, fantasy or something like that, it's the Old Testament, man. I mean, you got you've got it all. You've got you know, war, you've got unfaithfulness, you've got I mean, you've got it all. It, it's all there. Um, one quick question for you, because I'm trying to remember. Now, when you were talking about the apocryphal um, books, now, the Gospels, those still fall under the New Testament apocryphy, right? Correct. The New Testament, uh, that... So, like the Gospel according to Mary and Thomas and all those would be new. Actually... Most scholars would put stuff like the Gospel of Thomas, and um, I know there's also a Gospel of Judas. Things like that fall outside of the the New Testament. Old or new? Yeah, uh, because a lot of those fall into a different category. I remember learning about some of them in a class I took called Gnost- called Religion and Culture of New Testament Times. And we learned a lot in that one. A, a lot of it was a focus on a religion called Gnosticism, which... Essentially, well, there were different types of Gnostics. There were Jewish Gnostics and there were Christian Gnostics. Gnostics, but uh, they believe. Well, let's 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 demystify that. Gnos- Gnosticism is just knowledge bearers. Yes, and essentially, what so. they believed is that the God of the Old Testament was not the true God. Uh, he was actually a demiurge named Ildeboa, 
which translates something to the effect of bringer of chaos or child of chaos. According to the Gnostics, you had to spend your life trying to learn wisdom or knowledge because after you died, you had to ascend through seven heavens. Each heaven was guarded by an archon and the archon would ask you a question and if you failed to answer, you were sent back into the world to be reborn. And the reason that this was not a reward but a punishment is because Gnostics believe that within our souls is a tiny bit of the planora, or it's also called the true father, the living father, the light. Essentially, uh, Ildeboa trapped, created humanity to trap some of that light in the material world so it could suffer. Um, But eventually what you would do is you would learn these secret teachings so you could answer these questions and return to the light. And in... some of the Christian Gnostic religions, again, Jesus was seen as one of these uh, teachers trying to teach people that, uh, you know, the, the knowledge they needed to escape the material world. Now, the Gnostics weren't always popular because, of course, they were saying that, you know, to most people, the God you worship is not the true God. But also in the Gnostic view of Jesus, he said that, you know, anyone who uses his teachings for profit would be cursed. So again, you weren't supposed to, so it's, it's kind of weird. I mean, yeah, on one hand they were secretive mainly because they were persecuted, but yet they also were trying to encourage to try to tell people of this knowledge so they could escape the, uh, the material world and return to the light. Right. And there were people at the time and, and people still today that believe Christ was a Gnostic. Yep. Yeah, Gnosticism is still around. Um, and one of my favorite little Easter eggs, have you ever watched much of The Simpsons? Not a ton. Most of the Halloween episodes. Well, did you ever see the episode when Marge and Homer had to go through parenting classes and their kids had to live with the Flanders? No. Well, in that episode, they're going to play Bombardment. And then, uh, you know, the kids are like, yeah. And then uh, uh, Ned's like, which translation of the Bible should we use? And one of the Flanders kids was like, King James. And the other's like, revised standard version. And, the you know, Ned, of course, reaches back and there's this bookcase full of Bibles. And I swear, one of the Bibles in there said the Gnostic Family Bible. <laughs> yes. But... Well, little Easter egg there. Yes. So back to the uh, getting. Wow, we really get off off topic, don't we? So, getting back to the, uh, every time. Yeah. Well, I mean, still, that's a good. Uh, you know, that is a good question because yeah, there are a lot of books where some people think they fit within the Bibles, others within the the Bible, others don't. And you mentioned the Gospel of Thomas, which uh, is one of those things that some people do refer to it as a fifth gospel. One of my professors, Dr. Kathleen Corley, uh, she belonged to an organization called the Jesus Seminar. And they're basically a group of biblical scholars. They get together to try to discuss, okay, what of all the things attributed to Jesus, what did he probably say? And again, they use their different research methods and uh, they also discuss other things in the Bible. But what they do is they they have a four-color rating system where... If memory serves me correctly, red means he said it. Uh, Pink means he probably said something very similar to it. Gray means probably didn't say it. And black means no, Jesus, historical Jesus probably didn't say it. Uh, So the last I heard, according to their, you know, their research and their consensus, they believe that Jesus probably only said about 16 or 17 percent of the things that are attributed to him. But. Again, we're not going to talk. Well, and that happens when the books that are written about him are written 60, 70, up to 140 years after he died. Yeah. And by people that weren't there with him. Exactly. And you make up, you actually bring up a very good point is that, and you know, the same thing with a lot of the, uh, you know, the Old Testament. Again, it was because there's, there was a version called the, uh, there was a version, I forgot what they referred to it as, but it was an oral Torah. Uh, where this was the oral tradition that was passed down for you know hundreds of years before it was written down, and I remember when my Old Testament class when we were studying the the, the Genesis, they referred to how there's like kind of two separate versions of the creation story in there, 
One of them was believed to be the priestly version, and then the other was the one for the common person, you know, the masses. But Mm -hmm. so when we discuss how to set a a campaign in the time of the Old Testament, again, we have to choose what time period because this is going to determine what, you know, what the flavor of the campaign is. What other cultures are you going to encounter? And as well as what types of weapon and armor they would come, they would be able to access. And I think probably it would be better to cert, to set it later before the Babylonian captivity. Cause you know, of course there was the, you know, the pre cap, the pre Egyptian captivity. Then there was the Egyptian captivity and then there was the exile. Uh, then, you know, there was a time where they set, started to settle down into kingdoms and then, you know, that's when you had, again, all sorts of these kingdoms in the Middle East that were fighting against each other. Things don't change very yeah. much, do they? Well, no, not really. <laughs> but anyways. I, I actually think a, a fun place to set it would be the exile. Bring bring your characters, your, your players, into the time of the exile. So the time of wandering in the 40, the 40 years in the desert. You have natural enemies. You have enemies within. You have uh, other nomadic tribes they're going to cross over. Um, as far as weapons and that kind of stuff, I mean, in that setting, it's probably it's going to be sticks and small knives and things like that. Armor is going to be leather at best. Yeah, because uh, well, uh, let's jump ahead because normally I go through the classes first, but it's when you do talk about the weapons and you do bring up a good point. Most of their weapons earlier on would have been copper or bronze. And this was because during their nomadic period, they didn't really have much access to the minerals and the mineral materials they would need to make better weapons. So there's the four types of weapons or five types of weapons that they usually would use. First was the Roma, which is a spear, the Hanith, which is a javelin, the Herib, which is a short sword, and then the bow and the sling. And those are easy enough to convert because they are, you know, found in all versions of D&D. But what's the difference between a spear and a uh, javelin? uh, javelin? Javelins are usually going to be, they're smaller and lighter so they can be thrown further. But you can throw a spear. Yes, but javelins are designed to be thrown further, um, like I said, because of the lighter weight. Okay. So, yeah, they're two different types of weapons. Now, as far as armor, the most common would be shields. And as far as I could tell from my research, armor was not common among the rank-and-file soldier. Any armor they would have had access to was likely scale mail. Later on, some warriors might be equipped with a breastplate, greaves and a helmet but nothing like full plate mail um i no i mean in fact depending on i would think something like a just like padded armor you know like just thicker clothing might be considered armor as well yeah and, uh because one of the things that was different now when we talk about how uh to convert different D D classes one of the things well first let's start with the fighter And one of the things about the ancient Hebrews until they settled down and formed their own kingdoms, they didn't really have a professional military. So this put them at a disadvantage against some of the civilizations they encountered because if you were, if they were at war, and again, you read the Old Testament, they were pretty much always at war with somebody. (laughs) And the, you know, since they didn't have a professional standing army, if you were called into fighting, you pretty much scrounged up whatever weapons and armor you could find. Um, so again, generally we're not as well equipped and not as well trained as their enemies. Now, one interesting rule that you could incorporate, most people who are at least somewhat familiar with the Old Testament have probably heard about the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are mm-hmm. you know, the 12 different tribes that were descended from the uh, sons of, of Israel or so, anyways, uh, in some parts of the Bible, in First Chronicles chapter 12, it does note how some of these tribes specialized in a certain type of fighting. 
So that is something you might be able to work into your campaign if you want to do a little bit more research or you know a little bit more writing. But three examples that I found, the tribe of Benjamin, they were said to be experts with bows and slings, and they said that they, they could shoot right or left-handed. The tribe of Gad, uh, they were said to be experts with the shield and spear. And then the tribe of Zebulun, it was said that they were prepared for battle with every type of weapon. So those are just some examples. So you might, like again, the tribe of Benjamin, maybe you could give them a bonus to their attack rolls if they're using, um, you know, missile weapons. Uh, the tribe of Gad, since they were experts with the shield and spear, you could kind of picture them like the uh, the Spartans, you know, how with their fighting right. style. So maybe they could have a defensive bonus when they're using a shield. Um, so that, like I said, just one idea. Also, um, some scholars have suggested, though, from what I understand, there's not too much evidence to support this, that sometimes contests between champions were used to resolve, you know, battles. So you can probably right. think of the probably the most well-known example of this. Uh, Goliath. Yep, David and Goliath. Uh, so yep. it's... Again, it's been suggested that this may have actually been common in the ancient world where if you did have two types of enemies that are two enemy armies and they were at a standstill, they might choose to use the, you know, this contest of champions in order to resolve the conflict. So any other thoughts about how you might work a basic fighter into the campaign? No, I think you kind of covered it. Unless you wanted to go and not put them in the tribes and maybe make them part of like a either a mercenary group or like just a roving um, nomadic tribe. Okay. Um, you could do either one of those. and Or I suppose, depending on when you said it, you could make them a Roman centurion. Yeah, and that's something you could do... On for second edition, they did have a source book called the glory of Rome, um, where they do right. talk about the centurions and the, the Roman army. And they also do talk right. a little bit about early Christianity in that game. So if you, anyone out there is thinking, uh, or in that book, rather not that game. Uh, so if you are thinking of running a, a D and D campaign set in the new Testament times, that actually might be a pretty good place to look. Cause they do talk about, um, as I said, they do talk a little bit about early Christianity in that particular source book. Now, as far as the next warrior class, the Paladin, I couldn't really think find anything that I think would make that fit into an Old Testament campaign. Because no, I mean, I'm trying to think here because we're now we're talking about the Jewish God, and he didn't really have. And you had rabbis, but you didn't really have armed forces. And that would be the only way that would work. No, I can't really think of a way to do it. Yeah. And, uh, so like I said, a paladin said probably couldn't really think of a way to work that into this type of campaign. Now, rangers, on the other hand, actually, I think could work quite well. Because there are a couple of examples that we do see of ranger-like characters at least if we're looking at rangers mm -hmm. as being someone, a warrior who's really skilled in the wilderness. Um, Asayu, or Isu, E-S-A-U, I, I can't remember how it's pronounced. He was described as being a hunter, a man of the field, and rough in appearance. And then there was also Nimrod, who was described as a mighty hunter. Now, since mm -hmm. the ancient Israeli army usually was not as well equipped or trained as their their enemies generally they, they they probably favored hit and run tactics and guerrilla warfare so that's something i would think so yeah so that's something a ranger could handle or it's a it's again a good place where a ranger could fit into this type of campaign especially during that nomadic period because this is when they could again they could serve as a scout and a hunter for the tribe mm-hmm I would agree with that. Okay. Now, next, wizards. If you're playing a character in a, again among the Hebrews, no. <laughs> there are a lot of passages. Not even. 
not even, I mean, maybe in one of the nomadic tribes, you could get away with something like that. But even like the Romans, that person would be killed as a witch. Well, or a practitioner of magic. Yeah, because uh, if you're going to be playing a wizard in this type of campaign, they would need to belong to one of the other cultures like the Egyptians or Babylonians. Because uh, there are several passages in the Bible that condemn sorcery. So, again, you unless you want to keep your unless you want your character to get killed by his fellow uh, his fellow tribe men, you'd probably want to shy away from that class. Yeah, or you're going to as a as a DM, you're going to have to somehow incorporate magic into this true living world that it would have been bad in. Yeah, because generally with the historical supplements, when they do discuss wizards and how to work them into it, they generally recommend spells that are going to be very subtle. Um, you know, things like charm and divination. Because, uh, again, in the ancient world, uh, there were there was divination. People did practice, you know, those types of mm-hmm. acts. So that's something that would work. Um, enchantment and charm usually would work. They recommend shying away from your Big Bang spells like Fireball and Meteor Swarm and and Lightning Bolt. And again, you really don't see that in the Bible anyway. So, (laughs) Um, Right. Now, priests, on the other hand, when we get to the priestly classes, Druid, I wouldn't recommend it. um, Because, yeah, there wasn't really, at least as far as I can tell... There really wasn't a tradition in ancient Judaism about, you know, protecting the natural world and seeing it in a spiritual sense. Now, of course, you might, you know, you might have people who think, well, if the world was created by God, it's a gift and we should protect it. But they're not really going to see nature itself in any sort of spiritual light. Right. Now. We do know that there was a priesthood in ancient Israel and among the Hebrews. Now, if you want to go strictly by the Bible, they would have to have been descended from Aaron, so they would need to be from the tribe of Levi. Also, they must be male. It would be kind of hard to work an adventuring priest in, though, because I don't know how much you know about the duties of priesthood in ancient Israel, but their primary duty was to perform the daily sacrifices and, you know, various rituals, you know, a lot of times involving purification or atonement. Right. Now, I don't see why a priest couldn't go out on an adventure. And unlike clerics in D&D, the baseline clerics, I don't think it would be, I I mean, I don't think you would need to restrict them to just the blunt weapons. Um, I mean, I could certainly see them as being able to use uh, just about, you know, any weapon that you decide to allow in the campaign. I would think so. Now, another option, though this would actually be a bit better as an NPC maybe than an actual player character, prophets do play a pretty important role in the Old Testament. Uh, Because as you recall, there is a section of the Bible that is dedicated to, um, you know, the prophets. And there, like I said, there's several different books that are considered part of this work, like Ezekiel and... Uh, Amos, uh, see Jeremiah, Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say it might not necessarily be a desirable choice for a player character is because, well... They tended to be hurt? Well, not necessarily that. They tended to be scorned and tended to endure hardships. Uh, you know, if a prophet goes, hey, you, uh, you know, God's mad. We need to do something to make God not mad. How often do people listen to them? Never, and that's why they had the flood. <laughs> yeah, and and they also would sometimes have to, they would do pretty bizarre things to get their point across. For example, Ezekiel. Uh, in that book, he would lay on his side in front of this like model town he constructed, um, mm-hmm. and he would re- you know eat very small amounts of food because he was doing that to warn of a coming siege. And... Another example, Jeremiah. Oh, he did some fun things. Uh, He, for example, wore a yoke to warn people that God would allow them to fall under the yoke of the Babylonian Empire. He also smashed a clay jar to warn people that God would smash their nation. And as far as I can remember, there's only one real prophet that actually had a bit of success in his time. 
And it's probably one of my favorite books I remember from that class I took on the prophets, and that is Jonah. Now you're probably, what is what do people most know Jonah for? He got eaten by a whale. A large fish. Um, now, depending on the translation in the Bible you use, yeah, I guess some do say whale, some just say big fish. Now, the reason I always thought this book was fun to read is essentially it's parody because you look at a lot of the other prophets, they willingly accept their call. They give these long poetic prophecies and they're usually met with resistance. Jonah, on the other hand, tries to escape his calling after he does, you know, gets eaten by a fish and decides, okay, he's going to do what God wants him to. I think the city was Nevaeh, but he goes, he only says a few words and people listen to him. So that's what I always thought was interesting about that book is how it is essentially a, a parody of a lot of the other, um, you know, prophetic works. And, and the other the other problem with prophets is they never say what they mean. It's always some grandiose story that you find out later meant something completely different than you thought it did in the beginning. Yeah. So, I mean, I could see prophets, though, being good NPCs. Um, oh, absolutely. But, yeah, as far as a, a player character, probably not so much. But prophets, where – how would you build those? Would you build those like um, – like a seer? How would you like do a it? priest? Uh, because I think a lot of times the prophets were members of the priesthood. Um, yes, but I'm I'm talking strictly from a oh, game, game point, point of view. Priests don't priests don't have the ability to see the future. Okay. Well, you know, in D and D. Well, what I would do, uh, the prophet would. Well, again, just use examples I gave of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Or what they would, you know, they would do these outland, they would do these um, unusual public displays as a means to try to warn people. So if the player characters, let's say they do see uh, Jeremiah prating around town with, you know, with a yoke about him, you know, the players mm -hmm. might decide, okay, well, what do we have to do to make sure this prophecy isn't fulfilled? Um, just as an example. But, you know, you might have it. But how. Okay, let's say, okay, let's say you use that just because, you know, it's a biblical reference and maybe everybody you're gaming with has some sort of religious background. So you go, okay, we're going to use Jeremiah. He's going to be in his yoke. Most of the groups I play with, they're going to be like, and you like point out this crazy guy who's walking around in a yoke. They're going to be like, all right, they're either A, going to avoid him. B, they're going to go talk to him thinking he's crazy the entire time or some of the groups I play with, they're just going to go kill him. <laughs> you know, and I've had groups that probably would do that too, but no, I think that most, actually most of the, the gamers I played with would probably grab the adventure hook and try to talk to the prophet. And again, of course it could be a false right. prophet. You never know. I mean, those, those have existed. Yeah, absolutely. So, Next, we move on to the, the next category of classes, your specialty, the rogues. Uh, so, Oh, they're so easy to build those into a campaign at that yeah, time. Because, okay, how would you introduce a thief character into an Old Testament campaign? Oh, okay. Depends on who you're, quote unquote, working for. Uh, but there's somebody, they're a gatherer there's somebody that can get things right mm -hmm. so that's how i would play it off and say hey i have these connections or i have these ways that i can get things you need again thievery was very frowned upon at that point so you would have to be very careful about the way you projected what you do you would never say, I can go steal us some whatever. You would say, I've got connections, or I've got a way, or I know of somewhere to. Um, it wouldn't be your straight up, you wouldn't be a cut purse. You wouldn't be something of that style. You would be a more refined thief. You know, unless you're just going to play like a street urchin who knows how to swipe food from the stands. Yeah. Well, now, one I think those two are kind of your your bases for 
that sort of a story. Yeah, because one way you could do thieves in the campaign is they could be an infiltration specialist because also like a ranger, they could be a military scout. But uh, a couple of examples where we do know that the he, the ancient Israelites, uh, they, the ancient Hebrews, they did use spies. Uh, for example, the story of the walls of Jericho. Uh, they did have a spy right. sneak into the, the city. Also, when they were going on their, starting their conquest of Cana, they did send 12 spies to go report on the conditions there. Now, if you're uh -huh. setting your campaign closer to the Roman occupation of Judah, there were a group of people known as dagger men. And these were assassins. They would assassinate right. Roman soldiers as well as their fellow Hebrews were, who sympathized with the Romans. Yeah, I never really thought about assassins, but yeah, they would work very well. And they actually, you probably heard of the term cloak and dagger. That's pretty much yep. what these dagger men would do. They did have this, you know, they would often, you know, of course, wear cloaks to conceal weapons. But um, there are actual schools of combat that do use a cloak and dagger fighting style. Usually what you would do is you'd use the, like if you were getting in a sword fight with someone, um, you might use the cloak, like wrap it around your hand as a way to try to catch a blade. Now that's something that we usually tend to see more in like the Renaissance later times when most mm -hmm. people using swords were using, you know, the thrusting swords like rapiers. Um, and, you know, and of course, like I said, you could hide the dagger under the cloak until you were ready to strike. Now bards. Right. Cause one thing, you know, one thing I think that we need to point out here is daggers are not kitchen knives. Daggers are, you know, one and a half, three foot long knives, you know, that were made specifically. They had a thin blade made specifically to, you know, pierce the heart through the ribs. That's what they were mm -hmm. for. So, uh, you know, not throwing daggers, obviously. That's more like what we see now today with throwing knives. But a true dagger was a decent sized weapon. Mm -hmm. Yep, and then especially when we start to get to the later times, like during the Renaissance, they even had a type of weapon that, uh, I think the German name was like, okay, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but like, gross mesh, but essentially it meant long knife. And it was, um, it was, it was transitional because it was like, it was too long to really be considered a dagger, but it wasn't quite at the length of a short sword. So usually, okay. usually these weapons were carried in cities and places where, um, the you know you would you couldn't get away with carrying a fully a full length sword, you know. So it it could still be legally carried, but it could still defend against a sword if necessary. But that would be much later, and I said okay. I don't think there was anything like that in this particular time period. Now bards, I think if you take out the magic abilities they would probably actually fit a little bit more with the priests because there was a tradition of these temple musicians that would provide, you know, music during various worship right. services. So I think you could keep their music and their influencing abilities. Okay. So when we move towards monsters, now I think that there are some, there are some types of monsters from D and D that you could incorporate into that campaign. Now, giants, or at least giant-like beings, would be appropriate because in the mm -hmm. in the book of uh, Genesis, they do refer to the Nephilim. So these were, because uh, you probably heard the term watchers, these were fallen angels right. who they mated with human females. And as a result, they produced this race of giants. Now, also, some as far as their stats, though, uh, I would probably put him closer to an ogre, though, in terms of like size and power. So not yeah. not quite a true giant like we see in like Norse mythology, but definitely bigger and stronger than your average person. Now, right. depending on the translation, and, oh, you were about to say something. Yeah, I was just gonna say, and um, I think you know using ogre stats would be good. You know, minus the regeneration and things of that. Trolls regenerate, sort. not ogres. At least I don't think. Oh, you're right. Well, I don't know. There's probably, you know, there's with all the D&D &D books that have been released, there's probably an ogre out there somewhere that has regenerating abilities. 
like you know maybe an ogre got you know got busy with a troll and they produced a ogre troll yeah <laughs> now that you've got that thought in your head um do i have to <laughs> can i clorox it out you could try anyway yeah you're right you're right they don't have regeneration but yeah um well yeah but i think you're right ogre troll size i think that would work yeah and, and some translations do make reference to like unicorns and dragons but it's possible that those were inserted by european translators basically as a way to make the book sound more poetic and also more familiar to their readers um, and we're going to talk a little bit about those couple of those types of creatures in uh, just a moment here. But also, okay. so, now these Nephilim, supposedly they were wiped out in the flood. But the Book of Numbers does mention them being in the land of Canaan or Cana. Uh, there are also references to other giant-like beings, um, you know, Goliath, the Emites, the Anakim, um, also, another term that's used in is the Anakim. Anakim. Yeah, they were a tribe because <laughs> again, remember when the spies went into the land of Cana, they did report that there were giant-like beings. Another right. term is uh, Giborim, though it may not necessarily be intended to be a, a giant, but it also could be translated to mean a great hero or someone of great stature. And then there were also another type of beings called Rephite, um, Rephites, Repha, yeah, something like that. But these are, well, they are, they could be a giant-like being. They were also believed to have been ancestral spirits from the underworld. Now, there are also creatures similar to vampires. And when we did our episode on vampires, uh, we talked a little bit about some of those vampiric traditions. Uh, there was mm -hmm. a type of creature, the estries and these were female vampires similar to a succubus oh yes also some of these creatures that we're mentioning that I'm, we're going to be discussing here don't necessarily appear in the bible but some of them do come from jewish folklore um so even though they're not mentioned in the bible that's why i think we could still find ways to work them in okay. now proverbs chapter 30 verse 15 also does have a word that in it's usually translated as leech its exact meaning is uncertain, okay. and the word in Hebrew is aluka. And it's possibly another name for Lilith or one of her children. And it was said that this type of creature could change into a wolf and also fly. Okay. Now, you could also incorporate clay golems, though this would be a huge anachronism. Because folklore about golems doesn't appear until much later... But there is something, there's a similar word that's used in Psalm 139, chapter six, uh, chapter 139, verse 16, which is usually translated as an unformed substance. Okay. Another possibility is the Shedim, and this is a demon, possibly an offspring of Adam and Lilith. It was said it had wings like an angel and feet like a rooster. However, these beings could be both good or evil, and it's believed it might be related to the Akkadian word Shadu, which is actually a protective spirit, which, if I'm not mistaken, does appear in Dungeons and Dragons. I believe so. I believe you're right. Okay. Uh, there's also various sea monsters that are mentioned. Again, we talked about the big fish that, uh, or, or whale, whatever you want to call it, from the book of Jonah. Uh, also, there's the Leviathan, uh, Tannin, Rahab. Those are a couple other names I came across. So these could be seen as playing a mythological role of the Chaos Kampf, which is a monster representing primordial chaos that has to be defeated by a god or a hero. So in the case of Leviathan, sometimes they're pictured as a serpent, sometimes as a crocodile. And another well-known monster, the behemoth, which usually yeah, usually pictured as a hippopotamus. Okay. And then there's also the cherubim, various types of angels. Now, in the book of right. uh, book of Ezekiel, there is something described as the tetramorph, and this is an angel with the head of an ox, lion, man, and eagle. 
So these represent humanity, domestic, the king of domesticated animals, the king of wild animals, and the king of birds. Um, they're also described as the living creatures that carry God's throne in that book. I don't know if you ever, if you remember that description. It talks about the wheels within wheels, and some people believe that is actually evidence of an ancient UFO sighting. Okay, yeah, I've 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 heard of it. Um, so we could almost use like a uh, oh, what are they called? The lion and um, sphinx. No, the three-headed one. The uh, Cerebrex? Oh, Cerebus. Okay. Uh, Cerebus. Okay. Um, and as I believe... Oh, go ahead. You just have to change the visage of it, but I mean, it could basically... You could use those stats, I would okay. think. Uh, and as I believe my... Uh, as I recall my relig professor Erbrock, he, when we were studying the book of Ezekiel, described what he, Ezekiel, was seen at the start of the book was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Something like that. Now, there are also other creatures from Jewish folklore. Uh, one is the Chol, spelled C-H-O-L, so I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced. It appears mm -hmm. in the book of Job, chapter 29, verse 18. Again, our friend Job, one of the happy books in the Bible. Um, right. And uh, the verse goes, Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days like the Chol, which, depending on... The translation, sometimes it's translated as Phoenix, sometimes it's translated like as sand, but the exact meaning of the word is unknown, or not exactly clear. Okay. Uh, some other creatures from Jewish folklore, there's the Bar uh, Juchni, and this is a huge bird, which you could stat it like a rock. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. There's also another creature, a blood-sucking bird called a Broxa. You could use that as a sturge. You could use their stats. There's also a tradition of spirits called the Dybuk, and these are spirits that would possess people. Uh, so either a demon or a ghost. Yep. And then there's Mazakine. So these are invisible demons that specifically exist to cause harm. I could maybe see statting them as a poltergeist because it wasn't really clear. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't really clear how they caused harm, at least from what I could tell. But I could see them being like a poltergeist where they try to push people, um, you know, off of cliffs or ladders or push them into dangerous right. situations. Now, I mentioned before unicorns. And the there's a creature called the Re'im. It's described as being a huge bull-like creature with one horn. So sometimes it's translated as unicorn. And it could be similar to the creature, the bull of heaven that we saw in the light, in the, the myth of Gilgamesh. That sounds like a Gorgon stat to me. Okay. Yeah, you could stat. More than a unicorn. Yeah, because as far as I could tell, again, it was just more of like a bull-like creature. It didn't really, it wasn't really believed to have magical powers like unicorns were. Uh, then there's also a type of worm called the Shamir. Now, this is a worm that could cut through stone. And supposedly used as the construction of a in the Temple of Solomon, so I could see them as being pocket-sized versions of a purple worm. Yeah, <laughs> essentially that's stat them way down, stat them way down. Yeah, yeah. At least when I was reading, doing my research, it seemed like when they talk about worms, they are just talking about small worms, not like I said, not like super huge worms, but like I said. Imagine an earthworm with the acidic power of a purple worm, and that's pretty much what these creatures seem to be. Yeah, because aren't purple worms like 60 feet long or something? Yeah, they're huge. They're on God. Yeah, they can swallow you whole if they want to. Right. So, And they usually want. Yeah, yeah of course they do. <laughs> so those are some ideas I have, and you, know, you had some ideas too on how you might choose to run a campaign based on the times of the Old Testament. So any closing thoughts or any other ideas you might have for people who wish to explore this time period in a D&D &D campaign? No, but I think it would be fun. I, I wouldn't want to run it, to be completely honest with you, but I would want to play it. Yeah, and, and 
Actually, honestly, this is one of the reasons I do want to start gaming more is because as I've done these historical gaming episodes, I've actually picked up a lot of good ideas for different types of, you know, things you could use in a campaign. And it's not just like folklore, but like monsters and supernatural creatures. But I've also come across ideas I think that would make interesting character archetypes. Um, Like there were a couple when I did my episode on Australia. Um, that I thought sounded interesting. Like there's one that's kind of similar to an assassin because in brief, uh, they, some tribes in Aboriginal Australia believed that no one died a natural death. So if you died, it's because someone did something to either kill you or cause your death. So where the, there were these people who were believed to search out people who caused the deaths of others to kill them. Okay. So, what kind of like was that show Dexter where it's a guy who kills killers? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like I said, uh, go back and listen to some of those episodes or do your own. Like I said, you do an episode on Dante's Inferno, Paradise, and um, kind. What's the Purgatory? Third one? Purgatory. Yeah, because uh, see, I think I always thought that would be a really cool adventure to write, like a three-part adventure, like take your people through, you know. The Inferno into the Purgatory and into Paradise. See, the thing is... I think that might be... Yeah, that would be... What's uh, that? That would be interesting, but what would you do in the Paradise part? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I could see fighting your way through hell. Some of Purgatory is... Yeah. At least through the... What is it? Ten levels of hell? Nine levels of hell? In nine or ten, depending on how you want to look at it, because there were nine levels... But there was also the area outside of hell, and that was for the people right. who took no sides in their in their life, and also the fallen, the, also the the fallen angels who didn't take a side in when Satan rebelled against God. Um, and then purgatory, uh, it had uh, first there was the shore where people would go who were excommunicated. Uh, then there was the circle where that were for people who were the late repenters. Then you had the seven terraces because he pictured uh, purgatory as a mountain and each level was a sin you had to purify yourself of. And then at the top was the Garden of Eden, which represented the earthly paradise. And then, you know, once you get into paradise, you know, he talked about how there are the different spheres there where uh, like which you went to based on your level of righteousness um, or what virtues you were good at or weak at, like. For example, the sphere of Venus was for the lovers, and those were people who loved others more than they loved God. So while they were good people, they were and they were strong in the virtue of love. They were weak in the version in the, the in the version in the virtue of temperance or Mercury, the sphere of the ambitious, right. where uh, these are people who committed good deeds, but you know they were they did so more out of a concern for their own fame as opposed to, you know, any sense of right. of right and wrong. And here I took you off the track again, but no, that was always one I thought would be at least uh hell, yeah. you know, at least the levels of hell. I think that'd be a fun one, but yeah. Who has time to write it? Well, you don't need to write it. Just go back and listen to my episode on the nine hells and that should give, no, I'm just kidding. Or go read, <laughs> or go read Dante's Inferno. You could do that too. I've done both of those, actually, sir. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, so, any closing thoughts before we call this episode to a close? No, just go do it. Go play. Okay. And as I rec- go play games. And from what I understand, you're thinking of striking off on your own and starting what is it? The excellent media eclectic <laughs> eclectic media project. So, yes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your ideas for this eclectic media project? Well, the Eclectic Media Project, um, we actually incorporated um, a couple days ago. We are um, working on our website currently, and basically we're going to be a hub for all different sorts of media. There will be podcasts, of course. There will be um, there will be kind of like an artist corner where people can submit uh, artwork that people can look at and comment on and that kind of stuff. Uh, there will be a writer's corner for people that want to have people look at their stories or, you know, discuss their stories. Um, at some point, we will get into video as well, even though when we launch, that will not 
be part of it. So it's uh, it's eclectic. <laughs> okay, well, and uh, yeah. Go oh ahead. no, go ahead, finish. And uh, I was just gonna say, you know, it's um, it, it's something that's a little bit different than what's out there right now. Okay. Yeah. So. Hey, well, uh, thanks for joining me today, Chad, and uh, to the audience, thanks for tuning in. So have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. And when you start your project, you got to think of a catchy end phrase like, you know, I have for mine. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> good night, everybody. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Do you do a podcast about Dungeons and Dragons, role-playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross-promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network, or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com, and we'll set something up.